Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Astronaut Chris Hadfield has flown three space missions, built two space stations, performed two spacewalks, crewed the shuttle in Soyuz, and in 2013 became the commander of the International Space Station for six months. Formerly NASA's director of operations, Chris is a heavily decorated astronaut, engineer, pilot. He was named the top test pilot in both the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy, and was inducted into the Canada Aviation Hall of Fame. Chris is the co-creator and host of the BBC series Astronauts. Do you have what it takes? As well as the co-host with actor Will Smith of the National Geographic's One Strange Rock. Additionally, he is an adjunct professor at the University of Waterloo, an advisor to SpaceX and Virgin Galactic, and chairperson of the board of the Open Lunar Foundation, born in Canada. Chris, welcome back to the program. Good to talk to you again. George, it's a pleasure to be talking to you. And how are you? How have you been? Uh, very good, luckily, through all of this tumult. I'm doing fine. Thank you. How have you been? Well, that's good. Everybody's good, and uh, we keep moving ahead. But you're right. It is a strange time these days. It uh, it really is remarkable. But congratulations on your success and your efforts of what you've done for really this entire planet. It's uh, re- quite remarkable. That, that's a kind thing to say. Thanks. Uh, I've been busy, but... <laughs> I'm very happy with, with some of the impact that it's having and, and all of the stuff that I'm learning along the way. When you were a little boy, I guess you wanted to become an astronaut, didn't you? Even more than that, George, uh, I hadn't really uh, thought that it was a choice. I, I assumed it was sort of like a dream. It was uh, suddenly hammered home to me that for Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins, the, the crew of Apollo 11, this wasn't just a dream for them. It was actually a choice that they made. They they decided, you know, deliberately to turn themselves into astronauts. And, and that was kind of a an interesting revelation for me. And, and so I tried to make the same choice in my own life, to not just dream about it, but to actually start making decisions in my own life that would uh, that would help turn me into an astronaut. And, you know, as far-fetched as that sounds, for a little kid, 9, 10 years old, uh, that's what led to me doing all those things you mentioned in the intro, and living in space and spacewalking and commanding a spaceship. And were you Canada's first astronaut? No, there were three that flew as payload specialists, sort of like uh, guest scientists on the space shuttle, prior to me. Um, but it, just because of the timing of it, I was the first mission specialist, the first, you know, fully uh, fledged space shuttle crew member. But then I served as a NASA astronaut for 21 years and flew in space three times. So, um, so, and, and the, you know, there were lots of firsts in there just because it's, it's a new business. First Canadian spacewalker, first to command a spaceship, things like that. But that that's not because of any great personal talent. That's just uh, lucky timing. How did you occupy your time on the International Space Station? I think I'd get claustrophobic and go nuts. <laughs> um, it's a really interesting place to be. F- first off, uh, you're running about 200 experiments. So, so there's a huge list of stuff to do every day. And the space station is really complicated and big and stuff breaks all the time. So there's this long list of stuff that needs to be fixed every day. Um, and then 
uh, you have mission control in Houston that everybody knows about. But there's also a mission control in Montreal. There's one near Munich. There's one in Moscow. And there's one just outside of Tokyo. And they're all, uh, <laughs> to, to be kind, they're keeping you from being bored. They're, they've all uh, got, a, got a stick in the pot uh, of building your agenda every day. So um, they they schedule your time down to five-minute increments for the whole six months that you're up there. So it, it's instead of being bored or claustrophobic, it's like this constant race just to try and keep up with uh, with all the stuff that Earth is asking you to do. Did you have some kind of vision issue when you were on the ISS? Uh, sort of two parts to an answer to that. Uh, a lot of astronauts get a permanent vision degradation by flying in weightlessness for a long time. It's because there's no gravity to push the fluid out of your head. Like like on Earth. Oh my normally. God! Um, and, and so for a lot of people, their intracranial pressure, sort of the the uh, the pressure that's inside your head and pushing in your eyeballs, increases because of, with a lack of of drainage from gravity. And so for a lot of astronauts, when that that pressure in your head pushes on the back of your eyeball and your optic nerve, it actually changes your vision, maybe temporarily or for some of the astronauts permanently. It's one of the things we're learning on the space station. Uh, in that case, I was lucky in that um, it didn't it just the way I'm, I'm plumbed. You know, it didn't mm -hmm. change my vision. But uh, I did um, for a short period during my first spacewalk, there was contamination inside my spacesuit and I was uh, blinded oh my in my God. left eye and then blow both eyes by the by the combination of this contamination and the fact that without gravity, uh, your tears don't fall and drain away. So, so the contamination doesn't get, you know, diluted by fresh tear and then the contaminated tears running down your face. So it took quite a while for that contamination to clear and evaporate and for me to be able to see again while I was outside on my first spacewalk. Oh my God. Did that scare you? Um, I think it would have if I hadn't, uh, practiced or, or prepared or imagined what was going to happen. It would have been a pretty scary thing if, you know, if I was unqualified, but I'd spent you know, decades getting ready. I was a qualified scuba diver and nitrox and hard hat diver. And, and then in the big swimming pool at the, or near the Johnson space center in Houston, um, where we train, I'd spent hundreds and hundreds of hours underwater and inventing the spacewalks. And one of the things we practice, George, we actually have a name for it, incapacitated crew rescue. It's where you'll, you'll be training underwater and on one of the, the back uh, communications loops, the, the instructor will say, okay, Chris, we want you to simulate having a problem now. Don't tell the other spacewalker and we're just going to see how they react. And so you'll go radio silent and they have to come over and, you know, help you back or or you'll you'll they'll tell you to act as if you know something's wrong with your suit. You got a leak, or you have you're getting the bends or something. You know that pain that divers get, and and so we practice for things like that. We didn't specifically practice for me going blind, but all of that training and preparation and visualization, um, it didn't really change the danger of what was happening, but it sure did uh, decrease my necessity to be uh, scared by it.
We're with astronaut Chris Hadfield. He has written another new book. This is a novel called The Apollo Murderers. We'll get into that in just a moment. It's an ominous title, Chris. We'll get into that and find out how you named it that way. What do you think of the privatization of space? You you in favor of it, the way it's happening? Well, yeah, actually, I am fundamentally. It's sort of inevitable. Um, And we're not privatizing the universe. Um, You know, we're privatizing the tiny little bit of space just above our atmosphere that our rockets are now good enough to get us to cheaply and safely. So it's inevitable that, you know, it's sort of like if you asked me in, in 1904, when the Wright brothers had just flown in 1903, hey, what do you think of privatizing flying? And it's like, well, shoot, you know, we just barely be there. And, and it wasn't until the 1920s that airlines started forming in the 1950s that they became really, you know, uh, viable and, and global. And so we're sort of going through that now in space flight, where our machines have gotten good enough that the cost comes way down. So now it becomes feasible for it to become not just government clients, but but private clients. So it's it's inevitable. I think it's important that we we don't just let it be a complete free for all. Obviously, things like orbital debris and um, how you don't impinge on what someone else is doing. Um, you know, you need to regulate it just like we have air traffic control. We need space traffic control. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm for the idea because it's just a straight measure of progress. Had you been in your uh, 30s and 40s, Chris, and they asked you, let's go to Mars, you're going to be there for four years, would you have gone? Absolutely. Sure. Really? I mean, yeah. I mean, what did you do between the age of 32 and 36 that was so important? You know, you, you wouldn't have wanted to go be one of the first humans on another planet. You know, uh, Four years may seem like a long time at the start of it, but there are there are several four-year periods in my life. I'd have a hard time picking out one significant thing that I did, and and also, it's not just like suddenly you're 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 walking down the sidewalk and the next day you're on your way to Mars. <laughs> it's the ten years of work in advance of inventing the space flight and helping to design and pure and perfect the spaceships and and trying to solve all those brand new problems. It, it pushes people right to the edge without a big challenge. It's, it's hard to have good new ideas, you know? And, and so, uh, so yeah, all the great human adventures, I think exploration of the edges of what we know and understand that that's kind of the real, the most fascinating part of it all. So, so yeah, I, I, uh, I think that that's where we're inevitably headed once our technology gets good enough and I'm happy with the little pieces of it that, that I've helped contribute so far. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.